Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 55th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is robot law. We're delighted to welcome Ed Walters, who is the CEO and co-founder of FastCase, a legal publisher based in Washington, D.C. Under Ed's leadership, FastCase's legal research service has grown to more than 800,000 paid subscribers, and according to the ABA 2014 Legal Technology Survey, FastCase is the most popular smartphone app for lawyers for the past two years. It also teaches The Law of Robots, a class about the frontiers of law and technology at Georgetown University Law Center. Welcome, Ed. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, let's start out by defining this because I think the first question a lot of people who are listening might ask is, what in the heck is the law of robots? Is that a real thing, a real, a real academic study? <laughs> well, it is now. You know, the law of robots, uh, we tend to think of as science You imagine um, maybe, you know, uh, Bender from Futurama or R2-D2 or something like that, something in our far-flung future. The point of the class that we're teaching this semester uh, is that robots are all around us today. This isn't science fiction. This is something that we deal with all the time. In fact, you know, the fact that they've gotten a little bit invisible or hard to see in our everyday life may just indicate how mainstream they've become. Surgical robots, self-driving cars, weaponized drones, stock trading software, uh, computers and software and robots are running an ever larger part of human life, uh, and they're doing it quietly and behind the scenes. So the point of the law of robots is how do we think about robotics? How do we think about um, these machines now that are becoming actors in their own right, you know, not in our far-flung future, but in our present right here and right now today? Well, I, I know that's really true because having had one knee replaced by a real human being, I have been told that the next knee needs replacement and will be replaced by, in, in part, a robotic doctor, which is, is kind of scary to think about. Right. Well, if it's, if it's not a robotic doctor all into itself, uh, there's a good chance that whatever doctor works on your knee will be augmented in some significant way by machines, maybe robotic, uh, maybe augmentative, but there's a really good chance that you will have an assisted doctor and that machines will be a part of that process. Well, the, I don't the know if part, I like it, Ed. Sorry. Well, the, <laughs> the funny part about that, Ed, is Sharon ended up with a new surgeon because her old one retired. And when she first went in there, she looked at him and asked if uh, he was 21 yet. Uh, <laughs> well, at least, Ed, Ed, at least I know he's going to outlive my problems. <laughs> One question you might face is, uh, you know, what would the rules be um, for whatever machine the doctors use? Is it the same as the rules for the doctor, or it should be something different? And that's that's really what we get at in this class. Mm. Well, Ed, do we need new laws for every new technology that's under the sun, and especially some sort of special branch for this uh, this class that you're teaching, the law for robots? Yeah, do we even need a law of robots? That's a great question. 
At the very beginning of the internet, there was a great conference at the University of Chicago. Uh, it was one of the first conferences on cyber law. This was in 1996. And uh, scholars from around the country sort of got together to talk about this new thing called the internet and how law might impact it. And the keynote for the first day was Judge Frank Easterbrook. Uh, and Frank Easterbrook got in front of this room full of scholars and internet enthusiasts and poured a huge bucket of cold water on all of them. And what he said was, I'm so glad that we don't have a law of cyberspace class at the University of Chicago. We don't need a new law of for every new thing that comes around. There was no such thing as the law of the horse. When we started riding horses around, we just applied existing law to new facts. Um, and when it comes to the internet, we're going to do exactly the same thing. Every time we try to regulate something new, we mess it up. So by all means, uh, don't disabuse me of my notion. There's no such thing as cyber law and whatever you do, don't try and make one. (laughs) (laughs) And so judge Easterbrook's point was you don't need a law of the horse law of cyberspace law of robots. This is the whole idea of common law. We have established rules of tort or contract uh, or criminal law that we merely apply to new facts, and that's convenient. We don't have to reinvent the law every time something new comes along. The counterpoint to Judge Easterbrook was a young professor named Larry Lessig um, who made the case for an individual law of cyberspace. And what Professor Lessig said was, look, there are facets of cyber law that are different from the world and so significantly different that we need new law to cover them. So for example, when you are in the real world and you try to buy alcohol, for example, someone can ask for your ID. They can look you in the eye. They can tell how old you are. When you try to buy things over the internet, there's really no way of knowing who's on the other side. This is like the old cartoon, you know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. And so Professor Lessig said, what you really need there is a set of laws that cover these differences. This became known as internet exceptionalism. The internet was exceptional in ways that required you to have new laws. You can't just merely apply the old laws. You wouldn't be happy with the outcomes. And so this is the setup for the law of robots class. We're using the beginning of cyber law to teach us about what the beginnings of the law of robots might look like. And the central question has to be, is there true exceptionalism in robots? Are they so different that you need new law? Or can you routinely apply existing common law to new facts? Um, The answer in the class, of course, isn't monolithic. The answer is it depends. And so that's part of what we do. We'll go through individual areas like tort or self-driving cars or drones with cameras in the sky and try and figure out, are they so different uh, that existing privacy law or property law or trespass law won't cover the circumstances that you need? It's a a difficult, hard question. Um, So I think the, the, the answer is, Uh, Sometimes you do. Sometimes you probably do need a separate law of robots because they are so different, because our expectations change so much with the introduction of new technology. Uh, And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you can, just as a matter of routine, apply existing common law or existing statutory law, and it works pretty well with robots. 
it's a fun intellectual exercise, though. The, the whole idea behind the class was to ask about robots, but to ask the bigger question, how do you regulate things that are new? And robots are a great example of that uh, because there's so many new applications of them right now. Um, but if you if you have a class full of students who can answer that question well, well, are robots exceptional? Then they should be able to answer that question again and again for whatever comes after robots. Well, I think that some of our science fiction writers came to the conclusion long ago that we needed laws that were specific to robots. And I, I know you teach science fiction as part of this class. Why do you do that? Well, so I think that uh, science fiction is a really nice exercise in imagining a future world and some of the implications of what might happen. So in the law of robots at Georgetown, we teach about robots that are around us today. But one of the exercises is extrapolation. So if we set the rules today for a uh, toy helicopter uh, that has a camera on a bezel underneath it, um, what are the implications for that when the toy helicopter can act alone, uh, when it can decide for itself what it's going to take pictures of, when it can be networked with a team of other ones? So you can't just uh, decide in the law of robots how to regulate what exists right now. You also have to be thinking forward a little bit, too. Your rules have to be general enough to deal with what's going to happen 5, 10, 20 years from now. Um, and that's the hard part. It, it requires a certain empathy with the future uh, that we sometimes call science fiction. Hmm. Well, so, Ed, besides teaching about science fiction and ice bucket challenges, what other topics do you cover? <laughs> Well, so one of the things we like to do is to, after we've sort of laid this groundwork of exceptionalism, we will look at individual technologies in the context of some sort of area of law. So, for example, our, uh, tort, our tort classes deal with self-driving cars, and we'll talk about tort issues that are new based on the technology of a self-driving car. Or uh, in contracts, we talk about under what circumstances a machine might be able to enter a contract on our behalf. Could you turn a bot loose on Amazon and say, if you ever find a MacBook Pro for less than $500, you know, buy it? Or maybe that's a bad example, John, because I know you're anti-Mac. If you ever find a Surface 3 um, on Amazon for less than $700, um, Go buy it on my behalf. Um, and then what happens when the robot actually buys 32 of them? Are you liable for what the uh, machine does following your instructions, or are you not liable? So these are the kinds of things we do. We'll take um, an area of law and then take a robotic application of it and see what the implications of existing law are for this new emerging field. So can you give us a good example of issues that robotics raise that are truly new and different and I guess fall within this exceptionalism? <laughs> well, one of the things that I think is really interesting is most of our law today assumes that the actors are people or maybe corporate persons, I suppose. But there's an idea that there is human agency. Some person will make a choice. And so our assumptions in law are based on that. Uh, for example, in tort, our tort system is based on the idea that someone acts negligently. They make a mistake and are responsible for 
the consequences of their action. So one place where robotics really changes that equation is self-driving cars. And a good example of this is where there is about to be an accident and every individual self-driving car acting independently is making fully rational, completely accurate and responsible decisions. It is acting exactly the way it was programmed to do uh, and maybe each independent decision is 100% right and non-negligent, but there's going to be an accident anyway. So now we have these kind of machine actors where none of the actors really makes a mistake, um, but there is going to be a harm suffered anyway. And how do we compensate the victim of that harm? The, uh, the kind of masterclass example of this is there's about to be an automobile accident um, involving a pedestrian and the driver of the automobile and a school bus full of kids. In that instant, a self-driving car has to make a decision if there is inevitably going to be an accident, you know, whose life is going to be compromised. Should the car be programmed to protect its driver the way we sort of do today? Should the car be programmed to save the most lives and avoid maybe the pedestrian? Or should the uh, software be programmed to save the most valuable lives? Maybe because children have longer lives ahead, we want to preserve them. But there's any number of answers to that question. Maybe the the right answer is that uh, Google should protect the most valuable lives in order to increase shareholder value. Uh, the the people who click the most ads on uh, on Google, but no one really knows what the answer is. So well, could, it may be a matter of law that we have to figure that out. Could the affluent buy a car that was specifically programmed to protect the driver? That's another question. Exactly right. So there's a lot of ways that law could could deal with this. One way would be to say simply create an information forcing rule, caveat emptor. Right. You need to disclose uh, at the time of sale what the car is programmed to do. And if it's not programmed to save your life, people might just go buy a different car. Um, you might separately say, look, we have a global policy, you know, nationwide or worldwide to try and save the most lives possible. So we're going to require that every self-driving car saves the most lives. And then, you know, everyone is sort of, sort of forced to buy the same self-driving car algorithm. And in the aggregate, we save the most lives possible. But there's really hard questions in there because as soon as you set that policy, fewer people buy self-driving cars. They don't trust the self-driving car to protect their lives or their children's lives in an accident. So people buy fewer of them. And so it's really important to set the rule right in order to maximize values like, you know, saving lives and automobile safety, but also to make sure that we can fully develop and commercialize the technology. So there's, a, there's always trade-offs when setting new rules. I think this, this example sort of shows, though, that there is not an existing answer in tort law for what the computer software programmer should program that car to do. And so we might need a different layer of regulations that deal with how these cars should make that decision. We can also leave it unregulated, by the way. That's a perfectly acceptable answer. But we should recognize that you know, if we leave it unregulated, then there's nothing to stop Mercedes-Benz or Audi or Hyundai or Google from making simple profit-maximizing decisions in the software. 
Well, Ed, you know, drones have become really, really popular recently, and, and I happen to own one that uh, that Sharon has banned me from flying in the house. That's because of all the pictures <laughs> the, of the family that came flying off the bookshelves, John. There there was a good reason for that. No, no, it was gravity. <laughs> so, uh, but but tell tell me what some of the issues that uh, the drones raise when we're talking about the law. Well, some of the issues are simple privacy. So. Today, if you are a celebrity, you have a paparazzi problem because there are people waiting at the red carpet, uh, at the restaurant, at your beach vacation, waiting to take pictures of you. And the pictures can be very valuable. Uh, And so you have photographers seemingly everywhere. They're uh, limited only by their ability to be everywhere at once. Well, drones sort of remove that limit. You can put eyes in the sky just about everywhere. And so... You know, especially as they become less expensive, it's not very difficult to put a lot of drones in the sky to try and get these pictures. And because the pictures are so valuable, you can imagine it's going to happen pretty commonly. So just imagine the cloud of drones outside of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's house. And what recourse do they have? I mean, there really isn't an existing defense against drones uh, law on the books. And so uh, I would say privacy is one of those issues. There are uh, laws today about trespass. You might not be able to fly your helicopter on their property, but that's just a limitation of space because as soon as the cameras get better, you won't need to fly it on their property. You can fly it in the street across the street from their house or Mm -hmm. high enough that it's not considered their property and get exactly the same pictures. So what our expectations of privacy are today are about to be turned on their ear by the prevalence of, you know, inexpensive uh, drones or, uh, you know, toy helicopters and uh, inexpensive cameras. And just in the same way that, you know, cameras on telephones used to be kind of crummy, but are now very high, so very nice cameras, you have exactly the same thing with, um, you know, autonomous helicopters, right? So you can say something like, look, I'll draw you on a map where the mayor of Los Angeles lives or where President Obama is going to be speaking or where this celebrity is going to be appearing. Go get as many pictures as you can. Facial recognition technology will tell the drone where to shoot pictures and it'll take a limitless stream of pictures mm-hmm. and it won't be one of them. It'll be 10,000 of them. And so the, uh, the democratization of this technology and the proliferation of small aerial vehicles with cameras on them uh, really does change our expectations of privacy. Uh, in a scary if, way. <laughs> in a very scary way. And, and by the way, all of our kind of existing common law about privacy uh, is based on a completely subjective uh, reasonable expect, expectation of privacy test. And when the drones kind of darken the skies and, you know, cloud up, um, our expectations of privacy are zero. And so our privacy protections go exactly in that direction. Hmm. Well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. Well, this is normally the spot in our show where we hear words from our sponsors. This potentially represents a unique opportunity for you. Digital Detectives is seeking sponsors. You can hear your advertisement right here. If you're interested, contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com.
Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is robot law. Our guest is Ed Walters, who is the CEO and co-founder of FastCase, a legal publisher based in Washington, D.C. And one thing I've been reading about very recently is that uh, Steve Wozniak, the uh, Apple's co-founder, has been talking about how the future is scary and very bad for people. And he has kind of joined some pretty amazing ranks, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking um, and Mr. Musk have all talked recently about how we might disappear when the robots become smart enough and, in fact, smarter than us. What do you think of that? Well, I know there's a lot of people who don't worry so much about it. They think that you know, our, our robots aren't going to be much smarter than Clippy from uh, the old Microsoft days. Um, <laughs> but I think Moore's Law uh, is powerful enough that it's very hard for us to predict what uh, our machines will do. So I do worry about it, and it's one of the reasons I want to teach this class. If people aren't thinking about ways of regulating robotics, ways of being responsible with them, and thinking ahead about how to extrapolate what the implications are, we could be in a very, very dangerous situation. So we want to encourage this conversation earlier rather than later. So, Ed, what you're teaching now, though, might have applications beyond the robots then. Exactly. What I would like uh, law students to be thinking about is how do you deal with a world that is new? We will continually be innovating. You know, who knows? It might be advanced robots. It might be some merger, uh, merger or fusion of uh, humans and machines, you know, some sort of transhumanism or something. We have no way of saying today what the next thing is going to be. Uh, but it will, we know that it will present exactly the same challenges. So cyber law and robotics uh, in law are ways of thinking about how we regulate things that are new. And I hope that will have broad implications for the next 20 or 30 years. It's an intellectual exercise. Uh, it helps us to think about how to deal with what's new, how to extrapolate from there, and when new laws are required. It works for robots, but it would work for anything at all. So, Ed, you're neither a roboticist nor a law professor. So how did you end up teaching the law of robots? <laughs> I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, Tanina Rothstein, who teaches at Georgetown's Law Center. And uh, I was telling her there should be a Frontiers of Law class that asks hard questions. And I was uh, telling her that robotics would be a really nice test case for it because there was just some issues on the horizon. This was uh, just about a year ago. Uh, and she called me back a couple of days later and said, hey, good news, um, you've got the class. And I said, no, 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 not me. I mean, someone at Georgetown who's going to teach it. And she said, well, you know, there's no one who's going to teach it. And there's not a case book for the law of robots. So there's no reason why uh, you shouldn't teach it. It wasn't exactly my day job and required a lot of reading over the last year, but a lot of fun. And, you know, I, I hope that um, as I've learned more about robotics and the issues around it, uh, I, I'm, I'm not so much a professor like speaking from on high, but more of a spirit guide for students as we do this journey together. <laughs> I like the spirit guide image. <laughs> well, Ed, that was a great segue because you're always working on something new in your, in your day job. Anything new coming up that we should look, look out for at FastCase? Yeah, so we've been working uh, quietly in our offices over the last year or so on a new version of FastCase. We're calling it FastCase 7. But the idea is to take a lot of the analytics that we do behind the scenes and to bring them much more forward. So FastK7 is going to be uh, the best, most visual version of FastCase yet. 
with a lot more of the citation analysis and data visualization uh, right up front. And it's going to be blazing fast. We're all really excited about it. You'll you'll see it in beta um, this spring in limited release. And then uh, if people love it, which we hope they will, you'll see it uh, coming online uh, state bar by state bar over the course of the year uh, until sometime in the fall when everyone will have it and they can choose between using the uh, new Fastcase 7 version of Fastcase or the one that, uh, let's call it Fastcase Classic, <laughs> the one we've been uh, <laughs> running for several years now. Uh, we're, we're thrilled about it. We've been working on it for a long time, and uh, there's a lot of good stuff cooking at Fastcase. Oh, always, always. And I, and I want to say we had the privilege and honor of having it over to our offices and got a little bit of a demo and a look into the future. And it is it is brilliant. It is fast. It's intuitive. It is so much slicker than the classic version, which which I love. But this is this is a lot better. So I know people are going to enjoy it. And, and I want to thank you today, Ed, for, for joining us. I think we, we're reaching a point in time when what we thought of as science fiction is rapidly becoming science reality. Uh, and it's kind of fun to go with you, along with you, to uh, places that no one has been before. Uh, so thank you for taking the time and giving us some some really new thoughts on this very, very interesting uh, and and prevalent topic today that you see all the time. We really appreciate yeah, having you. Yeah, we're out on the, the frontier. It's we're a new frontier, and uh, everyone's welcome to uh, come with us. So, <laughs> Well, th- thanks for being our spirit guide. Uh, thank you, Sharon. Thanks, John. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.